Good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me clearly? Excellent. So let's start with a prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. And we worship you this morning. Please speak to each and every heart today. Amen. So it's Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, and today we remember Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, heading towards the cross where he will die for our sins. And here Jesus was to face great testing, even as he approached Jerusalem. He had previously faced three tests in the desert at the beginning of his ministry, but now he was to face three tests in the city at the end of his ministry the test of praise, the test of power, and the test of temptation. Sorry, the test of persecution. I will look at these in turn. As Jesus came to Jerusalem, he received praise, righteous praise, ordained praise, the adulation of the crowds, the cheering, the hosannas, the waving of palm branches, throwing their cloaks before him, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Imagine if you were on the receiving end of that adulation from hundreds of people. Would you be able to handle it or would it go to your head? It would probably have gone to my head. Proverbs 27 verse 21 says this, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by the praise they receive. When silver and gold are refined in the furnace, it removes the impurities and it tests the quality of the metal. We are tested by the praise we receive. Praise is a furnace that reveals any impurities in our hearts. Praise itself is a good thing, but handled incorrectly, it can puff us up, it can inflate us, it can be an opening for pride. It can draw out that hidden part of ourselves that desires to be exalted. And it can hook us into cycles of approval seeking to the point we can become compromised and willing to do anything to keep the cheering crowd on side. And if you do live for the praises of other people, you will slowly stop living for the praises of God. The ancient Romans were aware of this temptation, particularly in similar settings. A victorious Roman general would sometimes be allowed to celebrate what's called a triumph and enter their holy city, Rome, on a four-horsed chariot, parading through the streets with their army, their captives, their captured treasure, receiving the cheers of the crowd on their way in, basking in the glory. But a slave would also be placed in that chariot to whisper into that general's ear over and again, Remember, you are mortal. Remember, you are mortal. Praise can cause delusion. Praise is a test to be passed. What if you were given an anointing or a ministry where every single person you pray for is immediately healed and crowds quickly start flooding to you? Where people even tear open the roof of your house and lower a paralyzed man down to you and he gets up and walks at your command, 
What if even the dead were raised at your prayers? How long before you'd start to take just a little peek at your own shine? How long before something dark would enter your heart? Perhaps we don't walk in that kind of anointing yet because it would likely destroy us. Perhaps we're not ready for that kind of test yet. Hebrews 4 verse 5 says, Jesus was tested in every way we are. And test and praise was a test that he had to manage throughout his ministry. Miracles and healings, the adulation of the crowds, thousands flocking to him in the countryside to hear his great revelations. That praise could have hooked into him, but he stayed free from it and free to serve his father in obedience. He never shirked back from what he was called to do, even if it meant he would lose all human praise. We see this when he told a vast crowd of his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, possibly the most offensive thing you could ever say to a Jewish audience, and he lost almost all of those followers from that day on. Jesus was never swayed by the crowds. He lived to please his heavenly Father. He had faced this test before in the desert. Satan had baited him to jump off a tall tower in the temple in front of everyone to prove who he was and receive praise from an impressed crowd. But Jesus had passed that test in private, and now he would pass that same test in public. He chose not to enter Jerusalem like a Roman chariot, like a Roman general on a chariot of splendor in order to receive that praise. He chose to come in meek and lowly on a donkey. And not on any donkey, but on the foal of a donkey, a very young donkey, upon which no one had ever sat before, a weak-limbed thing, unsure of the weight upon it. There's no dignity in riding such a thing. There's no shine. It would have been a very wobbly ride, tottering down that rocky path. But this is what the prophet Zechariah had predicted. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Imagine going through those waving palm branches in front of that cheering crowd, throwing their cloaks before you. Would you be embarrassed that you're tottering on the foal of a donkey in your moment of glory? Jesus wasn't, because humility is the very nature of God. And the humble cannot be embarrassed. So what do we do with praise? Jesus received it. He didn't forbid it when the Pharisees complained. Even the stones would cry out, he said. But the praise had no hold on him. We need to learn to receive praise well. Sometimes it can be really uncomfortable for us as British people to receive praise. We can struggle with false humility and Often when we receive praise, all of our kind of insecurities and fear and shame bubble up to the surface and we say, oh, no, no, no. But if you say no to a genuine word of praise, then you're blocking the grace that's on those words. We're to receive praise, but not let it get a hold of us. Don't let it puff us up or we'll fail the test. Praise should encourage us, not inflate us. Receive it, but then later, in the secret place of prayer with the Father. You bring that praise back to him. You return it to him. 
and you give the Father all of the glory. In the book of Revelation, we see the 24 elders around the throne falling on their faces before God in humility and casting their crowns before him. But you can't cast your crown before God if you refuse to ever wear one. God does let us receive praise, honor, and glory, but then we give it back to him. And that is how we pass the test of praise. All of this ties into the next test, the test of power. If you fail the test of praise, then you'll be all the more likely to fail the test of power. Coming into Jerusalem with the crowd on his side, Jesus was unstoppable. If he had wanted to seize earthly power, this was his moment. Just think of all the good he could do if he did become the king of Jerusalem. He could drive the Romans out. He could set his people free. He could give wise moral teachings. He could heal all of the sick. He could deliver everybody from their demons. He could create heaven on earth. And best of all, he could avoid suffering on the cross. Wasn't he destined to be king anyway? Wasn't Jerusalem his rightful inheritance to rule? The test of power was a rerun of the desert test where Satan offered Jesus exactly this, all of the kingdoms of this world and their glory. But Jesus had passed that test in the desert and he passed this test again when that chalice of temptation was offered to him here in such immediacy. The cheering crowd didn't realize that Jesus was on the opposite trajectory to power seeking. He had emptied himself to come to earth and now he would empty himself again to nothing. He came down from heaven. He came down to Jerusalem to die. He went down on his knees as the Romans flogged him. And then he went down under the weight of our own sins. This final journey into Jerusalem was a journey deeper into the waters of his own baptism, a final and ultimate laying down of his life. He wasn't seeking his own glory. He was seeking the glory of the Father. Reflecting on his impending death, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. John 12, 28. Is that our prayer? Is that what we live for? Will we empty ourselves before God? The desire for power is a test that all face. Where do we want power? Where do we want success or a platform? Are we driven by ambition? Do we want to exalt ourselves in any sphere? Roman generals love to put up statues of themselves around the empire, statues to their, to their own glory. Are there statues to ourselves in the territory of our own hearts? If so, they must come down through repentance. James chapter three is instructive on this topic. He contrasts two opposing wisdoms. He says the wisdom of God is humility, but warns that selfish ambition is demonic. It's the wisdom of the evil one. Selfish ambition, any selfish desire for power and exaltation is literally a manifestation of Satan's nature the one who tried to exalt himself above God, 
but was cast down to earth. His false wisdom is everywhere. The whole world system is built on it. The scramble to get to the top of the pyramid, to be number one, to have the power. This is the matrix we inhabit. But it's utterly opposed to who Christ is, and he will not bless it. The Israelites in Jerusalem struggled with the test of power. They didn't understand why Jesus didn't want power. And a few decades after they rejected him, they tried to seize power themselves from the Romans. This is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he approached it, why he warned in our passage that an enemy would encircle Jerusalem and dash the people to the ground. He knew what was coming and he was heartbroken over it because he loved his people. And after they lost their war, with the Romans and the temple was destroyed, many of those same Israelites who were young when Jesus was among them, they would be taken by the Romans and paraded themselves as captives in a triumph in Rome. Their humbling was severe and heartbreaking. They had wanted to regain power through force, but they ended up in Roman chains. Josephus, a contemporary Roman historian, wrote this about the triumph. Even the prisoners were worth seeing, no disordered mob, but the variety and beauty of their clothes diverted the eye from the disfigurement of their injuries. When we go after power and self-exaltation and self-glorification, we disfigure ourselves. So those are the first two tests, the test of praise and the test of power. And finally, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he faced the test of persecution. He knew what lay ahead. He knew what he was in for. He would shortly face the full force of hatred and brutal physical torture and execution. And all at the Father's leading. Would Jesus submit to that and go meekly like a lamb to the slaughter? Would he remain obedient unto death? Or would he turn that donkey around? Would he flee like all of his disciples would go on to do, like I likely would have done. Yet he remains faithful when we are faithless. I've asked myself, how did Jesus face so much praise and so much persecution at the same time? Well, I believe it's because he was the Christos, the anointed one. And the anointing always provokes a polarized response. It will either attract people like sweet honey or trigger deep envy to the point of murder. Mark in his gospel wrote of the Pharisees, it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over. They were afraid of being outshone and displaced and envious of the crowd's applaud. They wanted it for themselves. So this was the test Jesus faced. This oncoming hatred, envy, torture, the sheer horror of it. He had every reason to be afraid and also to be angry and bitter and unforgiving. It was a cosmic injustice that the blameless, perfect, spotless, loving, kind Lamb of God would come into this place only to be condemned unfairly and cast to savage wolves, torn to pieces, spat on, whipped half to death, beard pulled out, clothes torn off him, nails through his hand and feet, 
a baptism of fire lay ahead of Jesus. But he set his face towards Jerusalem. He stayed the course out of his love for us. We see, this, we see him grappling with this choice later in Gethsemane, holding that cup he'd been asked to drink, sweating blood because the pressure of the test was so great. But in his suffering, he drew close to the Father and stayed obedient to him, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did have a choice. He could have saved himself from the oncoming trial. In his own words, couldn't he have called on more than 12 legions of angels? But he refused to. This was a rerun of the first desert test. Turn these stones into bread and save yourself from a slow and painful death by starvation in the wilderness. But Jesus had trusted his father to feed and save him. And this time in the city, he again refused to save himself, entrusting his life into the father's hands. Trusting his father would raise him up again. And he would go on to forgive his tormentors, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus kept his heart pure in the furnace of persecution. He went low and submitted to his father. He didn't turn that donkey around. It's easier said than done. People believe suffering takes you closer to God. It usually doesn't. When we go through suffering, we can become hardened by it and we can distance ourselves from God. We're often more like Job's wife than Job. Curse God and die, she said. The normal fleshly human response to suffering is to blame God and to distance ourselves from him. Suffering itself does not take you to God, but you can choose to go to God in your suffering. It's a choice, that's why suffering's a test. It tests our choices, it tests what's in our hearts, it tests our faith and it tests our obedience, whether we stay the course or turn the donkey around. It tests whether we're willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. And if we do pass through the fire, there's a massive upgrade on the other side. The spirit of glory rests on those who walk through persecution, 1 Peter 4.14. The glory is the radiance of who God is. And in persecution and suffering, God will bring you into his radiance, into his goodness and his love, into his tangible glory, and he will clothe you in it. He will take you to his banqueting table to feast with him in the presence of your enemies and receive a kingly inheritance. So these are the three tests, and Jesus passed them all. Satan had no hold on him, John 14, 30. Another translation says Satan had nothing in him. What about us? Does Satan have a hook in us? Does he have a hold on us? Will he find anything of his own desire for self-exaltation in us? Where in our lives are we being tested by praise, power, or persecution? In what ways are we being called to go deeper into the reality of our own baptism down into the waters of the death of our old nature? Can you walk through applause and receive it well and be encouraged by it 
in a godly way, but not let it touch you? Can you walk through triumph and success and gain power in any sphere of life and enjoy it, but not let it touch you? Can you walk through suffering and not let it turn you away from God? Can you walk through every test and continue to seek the lowest place in order to glorify Jesus? Can you say like Jesus, Satan has nothing in me? Wherever we are in this, our posture must always be to go lower still. It's not the chariot, but the donkey that takes us through the fire. And this is when we can be trusted with a greater realm of glory. When we live for the Father's glory, not our own, then we will be able to host a greater manifestation of his glory on our lives, including deeper realms of presence and intimacy with him. Gates of glory will open up in the spirit and we will start to walk as Jesus walked. But the door is in the floor. You have to go down to go up in the kingdom. One translation of Mark says the disciples found that foal, that young donkey, at the place where two roads meet. In other words, at the crossroads. The donkey sits at the crossroads waiting to see which way we will go. Do we want to soar high in self-exaltation and receive praise and risk the sun melting our wings? Or do we choose the path that leads to humiliation? Perhaps secretly we'd rather be a Roman general. Pompey the Great celebrated his Roman triumph in style. The traditional four white stallions normally used to pull the chariot weren't quite enough for him, so he went one up, and he exchanged those four beautiful stallions for four great elephants. A four-elephant chariot drove Pompey up to Rome's gates in triumph and exaltation, and then those same elephants got stuck in the city gates. They couldn't get the elephants through. So Pompey the Great had to get down off that chariot in front of everybody humbled on his big day. It was really his swollen head that couldn't get through that gate. If we want to go through the gates of glory into a greater weight of glory on our lives, then we will have to go low and be willing to go through those gates on the back of an ass looking like a fool. We're never going to touch revival until we're prepared to look like fools. The first thing that goes in revival is reputation. We will have to go very very low to receive everything God has for us. This is a genuine struggle, I think, for those parts of the Western church that aspire to be big, slick, and shiny. There is that subtle temptation, all in the name of good, to create something that has the outward appearance of success, our own Christian triumph with all the praise that goes with it. But it's very slippery ground especially if pride is in the foundation. We've created nothing but sandcastles if it doesn't have the mark of humility, and it doesn't matter how big your sandcastle is when the tide comes in. All of our works 
will be passed through the fire and tested by God according to the motivation of our hearts. Jesus is looking for those who want to glorify him alone. He's not impressed with decorated chariots or flashy displays. He inhabits the hearts of the meek and lowly. To truly host Christ and his glorious presence upon us, we must come like him, lowly on a donkey and tottering on a foal.